All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's very easy to use up all of your energy for reading or watching or listening on things that are mostly just pointing you at other things and never quite reading those things. So true. Do we even really read the news anymore? It's Note to Self, the tech show about being human. I'm Anoush Samarodi. Last week, we took a crack at dealing with information overload by presenting you with some stories and the science about what technology can do to your attention span and how single-tasking, doing one thing at a time, can help you reclaim it. We call it the Infomagical Boot Camp. And we got some great voice memos from you describing how it all went. And we're going to play some of those at the end of the show. But first, I want to talk about a business that is going after this problem of information overload, or as many in the media and tech world call it, the attention economy. You know, like we're all super busy and any brand or anyone with anything to sell is working their butt off just to get a little bit of time with your eyeballs. Buy me, play me, read me. Well, this business, the one we're going to talk about today, is succeeding. Big time. And if you are a millennial woman, you or someone you know probably subscribe to it. It's called The Skim. Over 3.5 million people get it delivered to their email inbox every morning. Around 40% of those people actually open it, which for an email newsletter, that number is mega. And what do they get when they open that email? A roundup of the day's top news stories, written in a, girlfriend, let me tell you like it is, relatable tone. One young woman told us that she reads the skim first thing every morning while making coffee, and she likes it because she can get the main points of the news before, quote, my brain is fully turned on. The founders, two savvy millennial women themselves, have sort of become media darlings. We are really being the first brand to turn information and news into a lifestyle brand. And for us, lifestyle, we mean that really literally. How does information fit into your routines? And what Various tech and business websites and magazines have featured Carly Zakin and Danielle Weisberg as sort of true journalism success stories, where old-school tech, email newsletters, meet new media smarts, targeting the affluent and on-the-go millennial woman. And their story goes like this. Nearly four years ago, Carly and Danielle quit their jobs as NBC News producers after coming up with the idea for the skim while sitting on their couch. Here they are being interviewed on MSNBC last year. We're seeing people so genuinely passionate about a brand rooted in news, and it's not just always happy news. When it's like the Cliff's Notes version of the news, which I like, too, because everything's all in one place. <laughs> okay. it's it's the Skim's core audience is women between the ages of 22 to 34 who live in cities, mostly in the Midwest and the South. 
As a former news producer myself, but one who has decided to go the opposite direction into longer and deeper stuff, I wanted to understand why the skim is exploding and if my skepticism about skimming the news is just some silly Gen X angst. I'm Carly Zakin, co-founder at The Skim. I'm Danielle Weisberg. I'm a co-founder at The Skim. Yep. So we invited them into the studio. You're a news geek like we're news geeks. Our dream is that we had lots of friends that are just like us and want to talk about the news all day long and get as excited when wire stories were printed and would freak out when breaking news happened and stay up all night and talk to us about it. And, you know, we text all the time when anything like that happens. And I think for us, the reality was we saw that that is not true. And we learned, I think it was kind of a humbling moment, news was a hobby for us. It is not a hobby for everyone else. Sometimes news makes people feel stupid. Sometimes news makes Mm -hmm. people feel sad and depressed. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it makes them feel uninformed. And sometimes it makes them bored. And sometimes it makes them interested. Mm -hmm. And what we wanted to do and what we feel, it is a right and it is a responsibility to know what is going on in the world around you. And our biggest pet peeve before we started was when we would go to a dinner, whether it was a family dinner or a group of friends, and see who dropped out of conversation when. Mm-hmm. Because we were literally paid to read everything, we really rarely had yeah. those moments. But when we would watch people not participate because they didn't know sports news, or we had friends who were like, I don't know anything about the Kardashians, I don't pay attention. It's not like we're an ambassador to the Kardashians, but they're part of the zeitgeist. You should know about it. So to give you listeners an example of what exactly the Skims founders are talking about, I asked one of them to read one of their story blurbs aloud, something sort of typical of what you might find in the Skim if you aren't familiar. I don't know if you guys are willing to play, but I thought it might be interesting. I brought um, one of your stories from today, and I was wondering if one of you would be willing to read one of them? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was the story about President Obama going to visit Japan on the anniversary of Hiroshima. Yeah. What to say to your friend who's going on a B-school trek to Japan? Say hi to President Obama. He's visiting Vietnam and Japan later this month, and yesterday the White House announced the trip will include a stop to Hiroshima, Japan, which means Obama will be the first sitting U.S. president to visit the site of where the U.S. dropped an atomic bomb at the end of World War II. Hundreds of thousands of people were killed in the attack, and a lot of survivors dealt with long-term health problems. Critics are saying that sorry is a word that should be left to Bieber, and that the president's often too quick to apologize for U.S. actions. Officials say this isn't an apology tour, but a chance to push for limiting nuclear weapons around the world. Well done. Thank you. (laughs) So tone is key here. When you read that, what do you see as sort of being the hallmarks of a skim story? I think— this was something that we saw yesterday in the news. And we were like, okay, big deal. He's Wait, going. You, did you actually see it? You did? Yeah. Oh, we, you did? Yeah, we're managing editors. Oh, we okay. saw touch everywhere. So we saw this yesterday, and we were like, okay, big deal. He's going. And then we were like, why is this a big deal? And we were going through it, and we were like, oh, well, it's a big deal because I didn't realize no U.S. setting president had been, hadn't yeah. been there before. I didn't realize that. And then we started reading the, the feedback that critics have called Obama an apologist for the U.S., and we were like, oh, everyone's worried. Like, he's just going to be, like, saying sorry. You know, so we kind of kept saying, like, sorry, sorry, over and over again. Yeah. We're thinking about Cuba. And then immediately we're like, sorry makes me think of Bieber. And the Skim Girl, our logo is a caricature. It's a cartoon. And what she does is she represents everyone has that friend who's, like, the tell it like it is, no BS friend. Just says it like it is. And that's what the Skim Girl does every day for millions of people. And so when we look at a story like this, we get to the point. And we present it in a way that is very relatable. 
And I guarantee you other people that kept seeing the word sorry were also thinking of Justin Bieber. <laughs> and when we put that in and they make that connection, it's a moment to kind of smile and maybe be like, okay, I get what they're trying to do here. But we're also educating them about what actually is a very historic moment. So just to push back yeah. a little bit, yeah. what, what can they bring, though, to a conversation if all they have is this little blur? Well, so, I think, first of all, like what we believe is that if um, – as long as as whatever outlet, whatever story you're reading out there, as long as it's factually correct and um, it's hitting the main points of the story, like why should there be only one acceptable medium of news? Mm-hmm. Like why mm-hmm. should you have to say that it's, you know, X amount of words or it doesn't count? Like that doesn't make sense. People can understand things and bring various degrees of background knowledge to different stories. And that's for any outlet. So I think for you us— You know what I think though for me though, yeah. like— What I worry is that a young person would be like, I read these blurbs, so check it off. I'm, you know, and not push themselves. So what we're saying is what what, what we're seeing, like, from the data is that all traditional media companies, to be honest, should be saying thank you because we're providing blurbs, but we're also linking directly to their content. Mm -hmm. And And are they clicking on them? They are clicking on them. I mean, we hear again and again from sites out there that, you know, are kind of skeptical. And then we link to their coverage and they actually look at the data and are like, oh, wow, they really do have this engaged audience. And, you know, they might not have found the Reuters story on Syria by themselves. So I feel like yeah, of course, there's like the skeptical, you know, negative side where you can look at this and be like, oh, they're saying that, you know, if this is all you have, it's not enough. But we're inspiring curiosity. And even if we aren't inspiring people, like at least they're getting something and yeah. something's better than nothing. So if we can get one person to know about this who wasn't going to seek out maybe a, this New York Times article yeah. or a wire story from Reuters, we feel like we did a job well done. At what point do you have a responsibility to say, Here's the information beyond this. Go in and have an opinion because that is what being a voter is. So that is what actually, being civic-minded is. Th- we, we reached that point, and that's actually um, really affected our coverage. So for the election, for example, we launched for the first time a, um, a microsite called Skim the Vote where we have guides on all of the issues and truly like what the left says, what the right says. And it's been a saving grace for our audience. I can't tell you how many thousands of thank you notes we have gotten from people saying, I discovered a candidate I didn't even know about. I discovered a candidate I thought I liked. I did not like how they interviewed with the skim. I discovered, like, why people are debating this issue. Like, I know there's a debate on immigration, but to be honest, I didn't really understand what they were talking about. Mm -hmm. Just because you're not up on current events doesn't mean that you're not a smart person. I think you can have interests that are like, I mean, we both talk about this, but our friends, you know, one of my best friends is a doctor. And, you know, the years and years she was in school, she wasn't reading the newspaper every day. didn't mean that she was less smart or didn't care about topics just as much. There's not one profile of who a skimmer is. I think we have a Mm -hmm. few. And I can't tell you how many thousands and at this point hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions, that have written in and said, news was never for me. My family never talked to me about it. My family would make fun of me that I never knew what was going on. And why would they want to seek it out if they always felt bad about themselves? Mm. And for the first time, they're reading about things and actually talking about them. And so when we get asked, you know, oh, you're just dumbing down the news, we get so offended because we're like, well, we just reached hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions, that never would have read your article or never would have known about this topic, and now they do. And why are they any less important than the people that read the paper every day? And that's... Like, they're still voting. They're still out there. Their opinion counts. We're just trying to make it more informed. And I think what we, you know, 
Our mission statement as a company, I think, says a lot. The skin makes it easier to be smarter. And I think smarter is a really, it's a word that we thought a lot about because it's not, we make it easier to be smart. These are people that are already smart. We're just giving them a little bit more to make it easier to be more informed throughout their already existing routines. So this is a pushback then in a way to sort of the elitist media presentation in that. Well, um, I think, you know, I'd love to be like, yes, we thought about it as a pushback, but we didn't. (laughs) We It was very much like we're asked all the time what we see our competition as. And it's not – the New York Times, and it's not the other outlets we used to work for, and it's not startups out there. It's no matter how rich, how poor you are, no matter what you do, you have 24 hours in a day. And the attention economy, that game, like Mm. that is our ultimate competition. You are choosing who you are spending minutes with, and those minutes are counted for every company that's out there now. Mm -hmm. They want to reach people, and they want to have engagement with brands. That's like the ultimate thing you can say to a brand. You have market share. You have this audience. And we have that. And that is amazing. And it's unprecedented for a news brand that's, you know, under four years old. Um, And it's something that we take really seriously. And if we have to read a story more than once to figure out what's going on, like, there's something wrong. And I felt like that was the case again and again. Um, And it wasn't that I thought I wasn't smart enough to understand it. It was just, okay, maybe I have, you know... 30 seconds, and this really requires four minutes to get the whole story, but that's what I have. So in those 30 seconds, how can I understand what's going on? In a minute, another millennial, media analyst John Herman gives his very nuanced take on where news journalism is going. It's cool and deep stuff. You're going to want to give this your attention. Stay with us. Note to self, I'm Manoush Samarodi. And we are deep diving into the newsletter, The Skim. As you heard earlier, when I was talking to the founders of The Skim, I kind of felt super weird that Justin Bieber was being used in the same sentence as Hiroshima. I need some expert analysis. John Herman, I'm a David Carr fellow at The New York Times reporting on media. John Herman is one of my favorite people to read about how the state of journalism is shape-shifting. He's been at BuzzFeed and The All. I started out by doing something that was a little bit, in retrospect, maybe a little bit unfair, comparing the Skims Hiroshima write-up to one written by John's now colleague, David Sanger. David Sanger is one of the best writers in the country. He was based in Japan and... Is extraordinary. But when I went back and read it, it, it became very important to me. Like, I really understood why this was an important story. And let me just, I'd love to just read you a sentence. The site which President Obama will visit this month reflected an almost universal Japanese view that the city was a victim of unnecessary brutality. Parents and children incinerated, thousands killed, and a generation poisoned by radiation. And then he goes on to really um, explain why the Americans felt this was the right choice. And he really gets at the ambiguity with what happened during that time. 
And it's not about apologizing. It's about remembering what happened so that we can be smarter, more informed, more educated. And I don't want to be preachy and I don't want to be like finger waggy. But I don't know how to say, I don't know, you should read more. Like, Well, I mean, I wonder what, what it is that you're asking the skim to do. Is it to like break voice and say like, all right, listen, it's time to get very serious here or to not mention it at all? Mm-hmm. I think I'm saying to break voice, right. to say you need to have an opinion, you need to care about this. This is about being a well-rounded citizen. Well, uh, so a similar example to me of, of a newsletter that I'll see sometimes and have complicated feelings about is Playbook, the Politico morning mm-hmm. like digest that allegedly everyone in Washington, D.C. reads. And you read it and you're like, okay, this is political world. Everything's a game. Everything's some sort of like competition. And there are all these like – dog whistles and there's all the signaling and it's very, <laughs> right. very in-groupy. Yeah. Yeah. But that doesn't change the fact that the thing that Politico is covering essentially is like how the country is run. And so I would in a similar way read almost all of playbooks sometimes and just be like, I wish you wouldn't talk about this because I hate the way you're talking about it. Uh-huh. But then I'm like, well, what are they supposed to do? Like right. the skim is for an email newsletter at – pretty huge scale and it's like a sophisticated business especially as newsletters go i mean it's nice to see someone like doing well yeah (laughs) Um, wow that says a lot about what's going on yeah i mean i try to stop myself when i find myself getting worked up over the tone or presentation of a particular news article or, or video or something like that because if i didn't then every day would just be like a long seizure. I'd just be sitting in front of my my computer like, what is this? But I do take issue with how a lot of media companies, old or new, characterize what they're doing, especially when they're defending tone, as reaching more people, meeting people where they stand, democratizing somehow information. Because there is something to that, but when something has a strong tone like this, that's usually the hallmark that it's speaking to an in-group. And it's acknowledged in, like, the business plans of a lot of companies. The skim is, is one of hundreds of examples of this. Companies are products that say we are reaching a millennial audience. We're reaching people with spending power. I think a lot of this revulsion comes from recognizing that there is a group that's been identified and that is being spoken to. And at best, they're being reached in a way they weren't being reached before. At worst, they're being pandered to. And if you're not in that group or probably worse, if you are somewhere at the margins of that group yes. and see parts of it in yourself – which is like a big problem for me with like all kinds of millennial stuff. In some ways, you feel like you've been seen, but then you watch that unfold in a real big performative way. And you're like, oh, I'm not sure I like this. Yeah. I'm not sure I like myself. I'm not sure I like my friends. It's identity media in a right. way. Yes, identity media. I like that term. And I guess for me, like having Hiroshima and Justin Bieber in the same sentence feels disrespectful. I mean, dumbing down. I I I don't know I mean, if that's gonna, unfair. I'm not going to challenge that assertion. I mean, when you flatten everything into particular tones, something always gets lost. And if your default is conversational, how on earth do you talk about Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki? I do want to ask you: What can we do as people who are living in you know? scarcity of attention, the the attention economy, who want to be informed but don't have a ton of time, how can we be good 
news consumers? I have no idea. I'm a terrible news consumer. I never stop looking at the worst stuff. Like I wake up and I look at Twitter. I broke the habit for a year or something, and it was great. And I felt healthier and better about how I was consuming information. But now I just do it again. It just happened. And, I mean, that's bad. Twitter is terrible. It's, it's like, (laughs) like vital to my job, and it provides a service to me, but it's psychologically just punishing and feels like I'm putting an enormous amount of energy into it and getting less and less out. It's very easy to use up all of your energy for reading or watching or listening on things that are mostly just pointing you at other things and never quite reading those things. It's (laughs) like, it's, it's, you, there is, I read God knows how many hundreds of headlines a day and descriptions of those headlines. And then I sort of fill in the gaps in my head. The satisfaction sort of tapers off after a while. You sort of hit a wall or hit a point where what you're putting in isn't really like worth whatever relaxation or fun you're getting out. And I feel like I've hit that point with every feed or app that I use. Facebook certainly feels that way. Twitter feels that way. Snapchat, to some extent, feels that way. You're saying this is happening every time you discover a new platform. You have this joy, love, it's wonderful, it's awesome. Oh, my God, I'm exhausted. Oh, there's something new. Right. Like, is this the new cycle? Well, I mean, for now it is. And it's something that a product like the Skim answers for sure, because you can, like, face this infinite, like, feed world of stuff that you'll never feel like you're on top of. Or you can read one thing and feel like you're sort of on top of stuff. At least you've completed something. You get to the end of it and it says you are done. The only time I really feel good about reading the news is when I've done so in in an intentional way where something wasn't necessarily served to me but that I had to find it a little bit. That's not a sustainable way to read all the time. But it's a nice treat. It is. If I'm at the dinner party and I'm talking about this stuff, like – I mean, I recognize all the words, but I don't know anything about it. I guess what scares me is the thought of, like, you're describing this dinner party and all the people around it have only read something like The Skim and all they're throwing at each other are these, like, bite-sized chunks of information and no one actually has anything to bring to the discussion because that's all there is. I mean, I would argue that everyone's kind of already doing that with their Facebook feeds or whatever feed they use to consume stuff. It's your own daily skim. That's what you have. You have a digest that has gradually been reflected back at you through, you know, Facebook software or through the people Ew, you follow. I don't want to go to this dinner party. I would rather be <laughs> home alone with my stack of magazines, but I guess that's me. I mean, and also, is this does this sound worse to you than the party where everyone read the same Times article that got passed around on Twitter oh, and God, everyone's yes. like, which is a total nightmare because you can just hear it. You can hear it like, oh, okay, I read this too. So-and-so is going to do this version. So-and-so is going to do this version. We're going to argue. Oh, you can see it I'm unfolding cringing. in slow motion. Like, <laughs> maybe a good way to think of it is like you're – Ideal media consumption is less about making sure that you can keep up with the people around you than feeling in some way fulfilled or better about yourself or the world or at least more knowledgeable about things that are important. That is key what you just said. Not the external representation of how on top of things you are or that you know that it's, you know, National Puppy Day on Instagram. We all do this. We all have our own versions of this. It's just when you see it done very deliberately, maybe it's revolting. We all experience strong pressure to make sure that we are, like, aware of the things that our friends and peers are aware of. And to see someone just say, like, I'm going to identify types and serve them things that they can then, like – consider shared knowledge maybe it feels dirty somehow but i don't i think it's just like 
how media works. <laughs> that's one of the great joys of reading the news now is that no matter what it is you're reading, you can find a version of it that's going to make you hate the person who wrote it, hate yourself, you know, hate everyone who's sharing it. It's all part of a balanced diet of extreme emotions that we enjoy as we read the news. <laughs> wow. John Herman, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Quick update to the story. The skim just took in $8 million of investment funding, and they told us that they plan on using this infusion of cash to get into video and to, quote, introduce more skim products and premium services that fit into the routines of our audience. Also, we asked the skim for specific numbers about how many of their readers do click the links to other news sites and longer articles, and they told us they are not releasing those metrics at this time. The extreme emotions, as John Herman put it, that consuming all the information coming out of our devices, it takes us all over the place. It's like a roller coaster. But you told us what happened to you last week when you took the InfoMagical Boot Camp Challenge. This is Elaine Meyer from Brooklyn, a loyal listener and info magician. Hi, it's Brad Greer from Madison, Alabama. Hello, InfoMagical. So good to be back. This is Beth from Ardsley. All this noise, all this information overload is not helping my well-being. It's one of those times when you have a great excuse to withdraw and concentrate on one thing. Just commit to it. I am happy to report that I did record this voicemail from start to finish without toggling to the internet or checking Twitter or anything else. And they can truly cherish those moments in life that really do matter. So thank you very much for all the inspiration and support. Bonjour et uh, bonne journée. Bye. Beth from Ardsley, she's back. Oh, love you guys. Thank you for telling us how it went. Single task on, my friends. Next week, how do people in different cultures use technology? What are the big no-nos? Is it okay to keep your phone on the dining room table? Even in the Paris metro, there was a campaign against it, you know, about talking too loud on the phone. South Koreans binge eat on their webcams, and thousands of people will watch them each night as they do this. So you call somebody, they will answer their phone. If they don't answer their phone, you're allowed to call them right back, and then you can call them again. And it's terrible, yeah. It's awful, but... <laughs> Your favorite NPR foreign correspondents are here. They're going to share secrets that they've learned by living and reporting around the world. Yeah, Eleanor Beardsley. The Note to Self team is Jen Poyant, Jenna Cagle, and Joe Plord. Many thanks to Seth Kelly for his help this week. Note to Self is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Anish Samarodi. Can we get the sign off for her? What do I say? Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris.